uh, we're glad to have our pastor back, and I'm glad to have my friend back, Mark. Uh, we have missed him this summer, so um, yeah, thank you for making this possible for him to, to take this break, and uh, we're looking forward to next week and following. <laughs> if you'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, as Mark mentioned, we've been in this book all summer now, and Colossians is a, a letter of Paul to a specific, uh, specific church in this ancient city of Colossae. Uh, it's in modern-day Turkey. And uh, what we see here today is his, his closing greetings. That's what we're going to look at as we turn uh, to Colossians chapter 4. Uh, but before we, we get there, um, I, I want to uh, draw our attention to something else. Um, there is... Uh, there is a, a hidden killer among us Americans. What problem do you think is as significant as smoking 15 cigarettes a day? It's as bad for your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, and it could affect anyone in here. It's loneliness, actually. Loneliness, believe it or not. According to a study published in 2010, a lack of social relationships is closely correlated with a rise in mortality equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day, a very serious downturn in your life expectancy. People with stronger friendships had a 50% greater likelihood of survival. Research found, quote, research found that the influence of social relationships on the risk of death are comparable with well-established risk factors such as smoking and alcohol consumption, and they exceed the influence of other risk factors. It exceeds the influence of other risk factors such as physical inactivity and obesity. More serious than obesity, more serious than these other risk factors is loneliness, believe it or not, a lack of social interaction. And the bad news is Americans are more lonely now than they have been in the past. And people across the board, Americans across the board, say they have less social connections, less social connections than, than in the past. Uh, a famous book came out, came out about 20 years ago. In, in his book, Bowling Alone, Robert Putnam, some of you may have read that, showed how this trend, this decline in social capital, he calls it, has affected the United States, particularly from the 1950s until now, with uh, a, a decrease in almost every social organization's membership, from churches to bowling leagues, which is where the title comes from. These things that formerly drew us together and generally were assumed to be both the heart of, of community as well as activities like bowling that were done together are now done in, in, as individuals. Individualism has taken over and the communal connections between us as Americans have fallen apart. It's so serious that in 2017, the then former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy uh, said that he was going to devote his time post-tenure to taking care of what he called an epidemic of loneliness. An epidemic of loneliness. The health consequences are so serious and the statistics about loneliness among us Americans are so, uh, are so serious that he was going to devote the rest of his time uh, to uh, confronting this problem. It was, he said, the most serious problem he encountered during his tenure as Surgeon General. Uh, and it's not, uh, it's not just one age group, uh, but unfortunately younger people 
tend to have higher, uh, higher, they report uh, loneliness at a higher level than older folks. College students in particular, uh, in a recent survey, more than 70% of college students reported a decline in health due to a lack of social interactions and connections. And uh, this was the most surprising thing to me. Uh, a 2017 survey uh, across a broad spectrum of Americans, uh, almost half, almost half of Americans said that they had no meaningful relationships. Said they looked at their relationships and there was no, no real meaningful connections. That's so sad. Uh, there are many suggestions about how we got into this situation and untangling it is too complex for a morning like this. But our passage today does in fact speak to this exact issue. Uh, when you look at the life of the earliest church, you find a rich network of relationships, a rich social network among people uh, uh, across broad spectrums, close friendships. This is one of the, the things that early Christians and their critics agreed upon, actually. Uh, on the one hand, you can study the evidence presented uh, by Christians, for instance, in the book of Acts, where we read about growing churches and the mutual care that church members had for one another. These were people who were united by strong relationships. They met together regularly. They cared for the daily needs of one another. This was uh, one of the standout virtues of the early church. Uh, so much so that you can read the testimony of a critic like Julian the Apostate, who was uh, uh, an emperor, a Roman emperor in the mid-4th century, who wanted to wipe out Christianity. He wanted to return to paganism. And he wrote this, uh, in one of his letters, he wrote this kind of famous letter to a, a, a priest, a pagan priest, saying, guys, we got to turn this around. These Christians are beating us hand over fist. He said, the impious Galileans, what's a reference to Christians, support our poor in addition to their own. Everyone is able to see that our co-religionists, that is fellow pagans, are in want of aid from us. <laughs> Because the Christians are going out and helping not just fellow Christians, but even pagans, their neighbors, those who don't, know, uh, don't follow Christ. Christians cared for one another and for those outside their own ranks. It was well known in the ancient world. They had deep social connections. They were friends, you could say, not just within the church, but even with those outside the church. The emphasis on love that we read in the New Testament had a real life impact on the daily actions of early Christians. And what we see from kind of a high level, a bird's eye view, when we read these things, we see in microcosm, we see up close and personal in Paul's life, in a passage like we're going to read today. Saul, the persecutor, had become Paul, the beloved friend of many Christians. He had a friend in every port, you could say. And as we read this passage, I want to consider how Paul's friendship bears witness to the power of the gospel to create meaningful relationships in his own life. So let's read Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. If you don't have the text, it'll be up here on the screen. Colossians 4, starting in verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are 
and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. These are the two bearers of the letter, messengers from Paul, bringing this letter to the Colossians. Then he goes on to list greetings. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So if you're just joining us, or this is your first Sunday here, what we're reading here is the very end of a personal letter from Paul and his co-worker Timothy written to this church, a church that he hadn't personally visited. He hadn't actually uh, set up this church or planted it. It was planted by this friend of his, Epaphras, who he mentions here. But as he's, as he's writing this closing to the letter, he doesn't just kind of sign off like, hey, do what I told you. Uh, rather, he sends greetings. He sends these co-workers of his, Tychicus and Onesimus, who are friends. And then he also sends a, a number of personalized greetings from the people with him, and then greetings to the people who he knew were there at this church in Colossae and in surrounding areas. This passage is a bit unique because it's not didactic, we would say. That is, it's not a passage that's structured around teaching. Paul's not giving some sort of theological instruction here. He's not giving uh, moral guidance on how they should live. That's what we're used to reading in Paul. Rather, what we encounter here is personalized greetings. Uh, We see, in fact, I think kind of a window into the life of Paul a window into who he was and into his own heart and soul. And this gives us an opportunity to consider how the message that he preached impacted him. Uh, what, we, what we see here are kind of like sightings of land. Uh, I'm not a sailor. I've always lived in New Mexico, except for a brief stint in Missouri. I've never lived on a coast. But I can imagine that if you are on a boat and you're longing, you're, you're headed for some destination and you've been at sea for a long time, those first sightings of land are very significant. And you're going to be, you may not be able to make everything out, but you can begin to see, oh, look, there's, there's a, a lighthouse over there. Uh, look, there's a, a peninsula that's jutting out over there. You just kind of see some of the outlines. And that's what we see here, some, some brief glimpses into Paul's life. This isn't a, a structured passage where he tells us, hey, this is how you be a good friend. But we do see 
what friendship looks like in the life of someone who's been transformed by the gospel. So that's, that's really our, our outline for today. I just want to look at four different aspects of friendship in the life of Paul. It's not comprehensive. This is not some kind of complete uh, text on friendship, four easy steps on how to be a friend. You never need to read anything else. But we get these glimpses. What does the gospel do in the life of someone, someone who was originally very far from Jesus? How does this make him a loving person, a friendly person? What, what sort of relationships develop in his life? And I want us to ponder uh, just briefly, because I'm going to talk frequently about the gospel here, but Paul doesn't use the word, in fact. Uh, he, he doesn't describe the gospel. He doesn't explain the gospel here. So turn with me to the gospel according to John chapter 5. I just, I just want to make a connection here between the gospel, that is the good news about Jesus, and, and friendship. John chapter 15, starting in verse 12. These are the words of Jesus speaking to his his followers. John 15, verse 12. Jesus said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. Isn't that interesting? So Jesus uses this word, friends. In fact, we're not importing anything into the text that's not there. Jesus says, this is the sign of true friendship. It's the love that would bind you together so much that one person would sacrifice their life for someone else. And of course, Jesus is thinking about his own future work, preparing to lay down his life for his followers. And then he says, I don't call you servants. That is, I don't keep you at arm's length anymore. I'm welcoming you into my own personal friendship. I want you to know that you are these closest relationships to me. So Jesus himself says that this is what following him looks like. This is what the love of Christ does in his followers. It creates these tight bonds so that we can say that friendship is created by by Christian love. All right, turn back with me to Colossians chapter 4. I want to, uh, like I said, just kind of get some glimpses of what friendship looks like in Paul's life. The first one that we see here is that Christian friendship means knowing about and caring for the lives of others. Christian friendship means knowing about and caring for the lives of others. One of the clearest things we see right at the beginning of this passage is that Paul wanted these church members to know about his life. Uh, In fact, um, it's a little repetitive almost, but you see three times in the first three verses, he says that he's sending these to Tychicus and Onesimus because he wants the, the Colossian church to know about his own life. He says in verse 7, I want you to know, or they're going to tell you all about my activities. Verse 8, that you may know how we are. Verse 9, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Paul wants his friends to know about his life, what he's doing in his imprisonment, how he himself feels in the midst of it, how he's holding up, and what his ministry and work and life uh, are in Rome, in prison here. 
So the first thing we see is Paul says it three times. I want you to know about my daily activities. And then the second thing we see is that he's sending two co-workers. As we read these, these verses, we might ask, why not just send a letter, <laughs> right? Uh, the Roman postal service was actually relatively reliable uh, because they had uh, it, uh, because they had significant uh, roads and a, a pretty reliable system for for transmitting communication. Why not just send a letter? Because a friend is better. <laughs> a friend is better. But Paul can't go himself. He's in prison, and so he sends two of his friends, two of his coworkers. These are the ones who represent him. Uh, it's important to know that someone in prison in the ancient world was totally dependent on outside help. So if you wanted to eat that day, someone who wasn't in prison with you had to bring food to you. There's no like cable television and three square meals a day or anything like that. So for Paul to send away two of his co-workers means he's kind of cutting the legs out from under him. These guys could have supported him. Go out into Rome. Hey, earn a living. Bring me extra food so I'm not starving here in prison. And yet, he willingly sends these two friends away because, he says, I want them to encourage your hearts. Uh, that's verse, uh, verse 8. He says, I want you to know how we are and that, that he, here he's speaking about Tychicus, that he may encourage your hearts. I'm sending a friend, not just letters, because I care about you. These messengers come bringing my own welcome, my own friendship to you when I can't come to you. Whereas we might assume that Paul's goal in prison would be care for himself. He's caring for others. He's caring for their encouragement. And he wants them to know about his own life. So what's better than a letter? A friend or two friends if you have them to spare. And Paul tells us that this was, was uh, his purpose. He wanted to encourage them and he wanted them to know about his life. These two messengers would have brought details about Paul's daily activities. Uh, these three phrases that I read earlier. It's not really clear what all they were going to tell uh, the Colossian church. But obviously they had a lot to say. Uh, Paul says, I want, the, I want you to know about everything that's happening to me here. I want you to know about all my activities. Twice he says that. He wanted them to understand his situation, to get a sense for what was going on. And I know that when we read that, it may sound a bit mundane. Uh, if I were to give you my daily schedule, it could be pretty boring <laughs> at one level. Uh, but compared with, I think, compared with our own lives today, let's just put that the daily activities of a beloved friend in place of some of the things that we often turn to. When you turn on the news, you expect a sensational story, right? I mean, in order to, to make the news, whether you watch it on television or read it on, online, it has to be something that grabs your attention, that draws you away from kind of the boring details of our own lives. But I think that's just the point here. The friendships created by the gospel make us interested in the lives of each other, fellow church members. It's not mundane. This is the whole purpose. One of the purposes that we gather together as believers is out of a mutual concern for each other so that we know what's going on in the lives of fellow Christians. And these friendships created by the gospel lead Christians to be less concerned about sensational, world-shaping news stories 
and more concerned about the person next door or the person next to you in almost said pews, but comfy chairs. Instead of emphasizing the basics of, uh, uh, excuse me, they, uh, they, they instead of uh, emphasizing these kind of world-shaping news stories, we're concerned about our, our own community. And these are the sort of questions that we should ask our fellow Christians. How's your health? How are your relationships in your family or with your roommates? How's work going? What'd you do this weekend? What are you reading in scripture right now? What is God teaching you? These are the sort of concerns that we should have for one another. Mundane daily activities, so to speak. Christians care about the lives of others because the gospel creates strong friendships within the church. And if you look at the very end of this passage, you see that Paul also sends his own personal greetings uh, to several church leaders, uh, Nympha, who hosts the church, and then to the whole church in this neighboring city, Laodicea. Why, why would you say this? Uh, remember me to so-and-so, except that you really care for them. Uh, you want them to know how you're doing, and you want them to know that you remember them and that you're praying for them. I think uh, there's a lot of criticism of social media in our own uh, modern era. It seems like uh, all the news is bad about social media, so I won't prolong this. But I do think the criticism is correct. Uh, A curated glimpse into someone else's life fails to meet this basic test of understanding the, the daily activities of what's going on. We're not really seeing into each other's life if that's all we do. But I'll leave off because there's enough other voices out there criticizing. I think the point is this. Let us, if you use social media, use it in a way that creates these sort of friendships. So, for instance, in the passage just previous to this, we talked about this last week. Paul says to the Christian church in chapter 4, verse 5, he says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, that is, those who are not church members, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Make that your goal in online interactions. Make it your goal to have a form of wisdom that's actually winsome, that's drawing others in. Consider how to give an individualized answer to each person, not just kind of the shotgun approach that meets everyone's uh, needs for an instant, but the individualized approach that actually cares for that individual person, care about the details of each person's life, including, in this case, those outside the church. That's the way that the gospel forms our own friendships so that we love across uh, these sort of of boundaries. And that's actually the second thing we see here is that Christian friendship means loving people who are not like you, loving people who are not like you. One of the striking things in this passage is that Paul is a friend of both Jews and Gentiles. If you've been in the church, again, this can become uh, somewhat, uh, we we can become familiar with this because Paul and others had friends across these boundaries. But in the ancient world, it was a well-known fact. Jews didn't associate with non-Jews, Gentiles. Uh, Peter tells us in Acts chapter 10, when he goes to meet a, a, a non-Jew, someone who had asked him to come and share the, to, to share the message from God with him, he says, listen, 
you know, Jews don't have, have any interactions. They don't eat with others who aren't Jews. So this was the sort of thing that, in fact, people were not afraid of saying, hey, listen, I'm not going to come over to dinner because I don't want to be with you. But Paul, in this passage, lists both Jews and Gentiles as his friends. He sends greetings, greetings from three Jew, Jewish friends and from five Gentile friends. That is, uh, uh, in verse uh, 12, he's, uh, excuse me, in verse 11, he says that these three, these, these three men are the only ones of the circumcision. That is, Jewish uh, friends, Jewish co-workers, among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. Paul moves easily in both worlds, mixing it up across these boundaries that no doubt would have been hard for him to cross. Some of us grew up in worlds like that, where you know, I don't talk to people with that skin color, or perhaps I don't talk to people from that side of town. There are these assumed divisions among us. But what the gospel does is it breaks them down. It says you can no longer observe those divisions. In fact, Paul brings it up here, I think, to point out that he's crossed those barriers. He says, look at the fact I only have three Jewish co-workers. He was a Jewish man. He would have been raised in this observant culture where it was uh, basically uh, approaching heresy to befriend Gentiles at this level. And yet, the gospel has led him to say, no, no, I love across these, bar- uh, across these barriers. These are, in fact, my friends. He is fulfilling the teachings of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says very clearly as he's teaching the uh, as he's teaching his followers about love, he says, uh, he says, you should love even your enemies. And then he goes on to say this. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Paul fulfills this command by loving people who are different from him. According to Jesus' words, this is how his followers reflect the character of God. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect by not just restricting your greetings to people who are like you, but befriending those who are different than you. In fact, I, I think within the church, The word friend is not too strong, but really too weak. Uh, The chosen description in the rest of the New Testament for fellow Christians is brothers and sisters. The bond is even closer than friendship. To use uh, the honorary title, brother, uh, as I have heard it in some some instances uh, where we we just use it uh, within social boundaries to people who are like us, uh, is actually to cheapen this, uh, to, to use it in that kind of culturally Christian setting. The point is not to make it a title, but to make it a practice among us. So that the natural bonds that you have with your siblings pale in comparison to the bonds that you have with fellow Christians. We, as Christians, are called to love in such a significant way that, as Jesus said, you'll lose these 
human and earthly and familial relationships. There will be a sword between parent and child. But, but, you regain it in the church. What we have among ourselves as brothers and sisters is not merely friends, but this sibling relationship where we care for one another at an even deeper level. And the reason that the gospel leads us to do this is because of Jesus' love for us and because he said as well in Matthew 25, whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you do to me. Whatever we do in love towards our fellow brothers and sisters in the church, we're doing in a very real way to the honor of Christ, to Christ himself. The gospel creates such a deep bond of love between people who have nothing else in common except Jesus that it makes us a truer family than the one you were born into. So the second thing we see here is that Christian friendship means loving those who aren't like you, becoming a new family that's drawn together by a bond of love that can only be compared as it is in the, in the pages of scripture with brotherhood and sisterhood. The third thing we see is Christian friendship means forgiving, even when there's been betrayal and hurt. This is just like one passing reference. There's so much that I, we have to skip in this passage uh, because we have, there's a lot of text in a short amount of time. But I, I don't want to skip over this. Uh, in verse 10, Paul mentions Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You see that there? And he tells the Colossian church to welcome Mark if he passes through. Apparently, Paul was sending Mark out on some sort of journey. Uh, he'd be in the area. Hopefully, he'd go to the Colossian church. Paul says, welcome him if he comes to you. Uh, you've already received that command from me. Apparently, Paul had, had uh, sent Mark out. And he says in a later letter in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that Mark was very useful to him for ministry. He was a good, a good friend and co-worker to him. But if you, if you know your New Testament history... And you compare this passage backwards to what's happened previously, you know that a deep reconciliation has taken place here. In Acts, we read how Mark journeyed with Barnabas, his cousin, and Paul on the first missionary journey. And somewhere in the middle of that journey, Mark left. He abandoned them. Uh, before the work was over, he left and he went home. And uh, the, the, the mission continued. Paul and Barnabas finished their work. They come back home. And in Acts chapter 15, we read that as they're getting ready to set out on their second journey, their second mission, uh, Barnabas wants to bring Mark with them. Hey, I'm going to bring my cousin along with me. He was, he was helpful for at least part of the time. And Paul says, absolutely not. I will not go with you if you bring Mark. And they actually separate. Uh, it's one of the, the sadder stories in Acts. And, and uh, we're not really told. It's interesting. Luke doesn't really give his judgment. Was it wrong? Was it wrong? He says this, though. A sharp disagreement arose between them. A sharp disagreement between these brothers in Christ over whether or not Mark should be brought. So Paul's very clear. Mark is not fit to be one of my co-workers at this point. But what we see here is that these brothers, these brothers in Christ, Paul and Mark, have now been reconciled. There's something about, something like 10 years has passed between these, uh, between the writing of Colossians and that first missionary journey, uh, or excuse me, uh, the second missionary journey where, where Barnabas and Paul parted ways over Mark. So in that decade, 
the gospel had done this work. It had created a reconciliation where previously it seemed impossible to Paul for there to be a reconciliation, an ability to work together. True Christian love forgives. That's what we see here. Paul's living out his own commands to the church. Just look back at the previous chapter. Chapter 3, in verse 13, Paul tells the, the Colossians that he wants them to bear with one another. Chapter 3, verse 13. Bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Have you felt betrayed by a fellow church member or Christian from another church? I know, I know there are examples of this among us. I hope that as we look at Paul's welcoming of Mark, his willingness to work with him, and his forgiveness, whatever happened in the intermediate period, that we will learn to forgive even significant betrayals. I know that in some cases, the, the hurts that have happened means that there have to be boundaries put up. Wisdom means you have to create boundaries. However, at the same time, the gospel calls us to forgive in those situations as well. That is, we don't hold on to our bitterness. We don't hold on to that unforgiveness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrong. That is, when we find that list growing in our hearts about someone who's wronged us before, we have to say that list has to be burned. You can't hold on to those bitternesses. You can't nurture those hard feelings towards others. Boundaries, perhaps, but not unforgiveness. The gospel creates Christian friendship where forgiveness overcomes past hurts and betrayals. That's the third thing we see here. And fourth, Christian friendship means working for spiritual maturity, for the spiritual maturity of other Christians. Christian love is concerned with the daily activities of life. Uh, what did you do yesterday? How was your weekend? How'd that thing go that we talked about? But there is also this additional aspect to Christian friendship. True Christian friends care for the spiritual growth and maturity of fellow Christians. And we see this in Paul's example of Epaphras. In verse 12, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, that is, he's a Colossian, he's from your church, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. This is interesting. Several weeks back, we talked about uh, slavery and what it meant to be a slave in the ancient world. And here we see Paul calls Epaphras a slave of Christ. This term has now been turned upside down. Paul himself and Epaphras, who are apparently both free, consider themselves to be slaves of Christ. And therefore, Epaphras is not committed to his own priorities. His goals are the goals of his master, Jesus. And so he cares for the spiritual growth of his brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Epaphras struggles in prayer, we read in verse 12. In verse 13, Paul says he's done much work or he's labored hard for you. The work uh, that he's describing here, he says, I testify to it. I testify that he's done this, this hard work for you, which is interesting because you wonder, well, why does he have to testify to it? Well, apparently they hadn't seen it. This was something that had happened uh, behind closed doors or, or while Epaphras was away from them. But it's something that he could do for them while he was geographically separated from them. He seems to be just saying the same thing that he said before. He has struggled in prayer for you. This word struggle, it means uh, hard work, diligence. It can be translated wrestling. Maybe you think of Jacob wrestling with the angel all night. At the end of it, he's exhausted. So also we are called to do hard work in prayer. Epaphras does this hard work in prayer. Uh, and I, I think this is significant because we do sometimes, like we talked about previously, we do sometimes get discouraged in prayer. We say, you know what? It was difficult and I don't know how to continue. But I think what, what we see here, if there is this sort of struggle that's necessary, number one, we should be encouraged to say, that's you're doing it right. You're doing it right if you find yourself coming up against barriers and having to, to labor hard to push through them in prayer. And secondly, as with any difficult thing, by practice, you can grow in it. By practice, you can grow in it. I was thinking about chopping wood. I have wood to chop for the winter. Uh, I wouldn't set my kids on it if they've never had an axe in their hand. <laughs> but by diligence and practice over time, they can learn to do it, that hard work of chopping wood. So also, by diligence and practice and prayer, we can grow so that we too learn to struggle in prayer, as Epaphras did, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. True Christian friendship leads us to be concerned for the spiritual growth of others, not merely in speaking to them, but in speaking to God about them. Epaphras' love for the church meant that he labored in prayer for their spiritual maturity. That's what Paul says here, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. You know what the will of God is, Colossians, because I've, I've told you about it. That's what it is right here, what's in the letter. However, to stand, to stand, which is the opposite of stumbling here, it's being compared with falling, requires God's work in you and the friendship of fellow Christians laboring for one another and with one another. And finally, a sad note here. In verse 14, Paul mentions Demas, just in passing. He says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Demas, again, if you know your, your New Testament, you will recognize that name from one other location in the New Testament, in 2 Timothy 4, where Paul says, he's writing to Timothy, and he says, hey, come quickly, because... I don't have anybody else with me. He says about Demas, in, he was in love with the world, and so he left me. He went to Thessalonica. Uh, this is, I think, a very sad note that reminds us of the importance of spiritual maturity. Stumbling and falling away from Christ is a reality. We do, in fact, need each other. It's hard to tell uh, because we don't have a whole lot of information about Demas, did Paul know that Demas was beginning to walk away? Why, why doesn't he give more of a greeting from Demas? Why does he just get this one passing reference? Who knows? How early did Jesus know that Judas would betray him? 
would be the one who would turn him over. And yet, both Jesus and Paul included these two and continued to work for them, to labor with them and include them and continue to seek their spiritual maturity. Christian friendship means seeking and having a concern for the spiritual maturity of those around us. Well, we're going to sing in just a moment as we close here, O Church Arise. And I love this song because uh, it calls us to wrestle in love for others. It uses some of this battle language, but the battle that we're engaged in is not against others. It's for our brothers and sisters in Christ, for the love of them. And that comes down to us from Christ himself. The reminder in verse 3 that we'll sing is, Come see the cross where love and mercy meet. When we look to the cross, when we look to Jesus, who laid down his life for his friends, this is what creates in us the ability to forgive when we've been betrayed, to have a concern both for the daily needs and the deeper spiritual concerns of others. So let me pray for us, and then we'll sing. Father, we love you, and we thank you for your kindness to us, to give us your own son for our salvation and for our friendship with him. I pray, Lord, help us, help us to ponder the depth of friendship that we have with Christ. I pray that you would press us into this form of, of friendship, that we would not, that we would not just uh, become accustomed to the ways of uh, passing relationships with others, but that you would please create a concern for others at both the daily level and at, their, at the need of, of spiritual maturity and spiritual growth. Create among us a network of friendships that would shine light on Christ that would point the way to his gospel and to your work among us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.